Yawa Radio, bringing the feel-good feeling to every day. This is Glass Hour Full with me, Steve Twining, where I'm joined by inspirational guests from around the world, sharing their stories, stories that may well resonate with you. Sit back and enjoy this week's Glass Half Full. You're listening to Yawa Radio. You know, we love to bring you inspirational guests and inspirational stories from across the world. Now, change. It's all around us. But what about this? 47 years ago today, I've just been told, right, Tony, my guest today, Tony Redondo, had a massive change. Tony, welcome to Yawa Radio. Tell us about the change. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you for having me on. Yes, it was quite a change. Um, 47 years ago today, on the 25th of January, long ago in 1975, uh, my parents, uh, myself at the age of eight, and a f- my five-year-old sister arrived at Heathrow Airport uh, from Portugal without a word of English between us. Wow. Wow. And, and this was absolutely, this was after a change of a ruler in, in Portugal. That's how it all came about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was born in Mozambique in Africa. The capital was then called Lorenzo Marx. It's now Maputo. And my sister was born in Lisbon, the Portuguese uh, capital. And uh, Portugal at the time was under the Salazar fascist regime. They had been in under since the 1920s. So our dictator you know, um, beat Mussolini, beat Hitler in terms of longevity. Uh, didn't quite make it as long as Franco in Spain next door. Um, but on the 25th of April 1974, there was a re- the so-called Carnation Revolution back in Portugal, which overthrew the 50-year-old fascist dictatorship. Um, the communists came in. They gave away the colonies overnight. So people in, in the colonies were given 24 hours notice to either come out under military guard or you're on your own. Wow. And you were on your own. Oh, a lot of people went across to what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Some went across to South Africa. The majority went back to Portugal. The problem was that Portugal is a small country. There's nearly as many people in London as there are in the whole <laughs> of the country. Um, and so all these hordes were coming back from Mozambique, from Angola, from Cape Verde, from Timor in Indonesia, from Goa in India and other Portuguese colonies. And the country couldn't cope. So uh, some very clever civil servants decided if you'd been born in Portugal, you, you could stay. And uh, if you weren't, you couldn't. Mm. So my parents all of a sudden had a bit of a job on their hands with their eight-year-old son, <laughs> who uh, was suddenly an illegal alien in his own country. So the country was in turmoil. My parents tried for 10 months to uh, find work and get me registered and get me into school and all the things that you do as a family wasn't working. And so one day they went into downtown Lisbon and visited three embassies, the British, Australian and Canadian embassies. And the British were the quickest off the mark, gave us a visa. Right. So on the 25th of January, 1975, the four of us landed at Heathrow Airport. 
And 47 years later, I can honestly still say I've never been so cold in my life. <laughs> I was just going to say, we, we were talking just in what we call the green room before we started talking on the, on the radio, Tony, and you were saying that you used to swim in the Indian Ocean at what temperature? 23 degrees water temperature, what? 26 degrees air temperature. That's in the winter. That's it. That, right. And then you land at Heathrow in January. <laughs> yeah. I've and, never... Uh, ever seen snow or frost i never worn a coat i've never worn scarf hats gloves i didn't even know they existed god so it was quite a shock to the system steve i have to say and, and tony it wasn't apart from the cold which was bad enough it wasn't a great start for you either was it in terms of catching chicken pox or something yeah absolutely yeah so um i uh, the first thing i did is uh, catch bronchitis okay and then i just about recovered from that and i came down with chicken pox but like most things in life, Steve, you know, there's always two sides to the coin. The That wasn't a great start, and the bronchitis has affected my lungs to this day. Um, I did a lot of sport when I was younger, but I couldn't do uh, um, long-distance sports. It had to be short, sharp, explosive sports, because I don't have the lung capacity for middle-distance running and above, because uh, it affected my lung capacity. Um, but I was bed-bound for quite a few months. And so my father was a banker in, in Africa, but his qualifications weren't recognised in the UK. So to make ends meet, he ended up washing up dishes in a hotel. Wow. And he used wow. to bring home um, the old newspapers, you know, the Times and the Telegraph. And yeah, I remember to this day, I've still got it somewhere, a, a, a grey cloth bound, big Portuguese, English, English, Portuguese dictionary. Wow. And as I lay in bed... I would read the newspaper with a dictionary, word for word, trying to word associate with the radio in the background and black and white TV. Go on. Corner. Yeah. Wow. Uh, just try to make some sense of just try and pick up through osmosis as much language as possible. But certainly, luckily, I'm reasonably good at maps. So I wasn't completely, uh, wasn't a complete write off the first couple of years at school because maps and sport and sport I was okay with. Everything else, forget it. <laughs> wow. So there you go. If you're listening to this and you thought you'd got a change in your life, then what, what a change that must have been. So there you go. You, you settled in London, but then, you know, after school, your career sort of kicked off a little bit. It went well. Yes. Um, we settled in Hackney, the east end of London, which was a um, pretty interesting place to grow up in in the 1970s. And uh, early 80s with the National Front and the inner city riots and all the rest. Um, but I, um, I left school with very few qualifications, but I went to a college in North London and I just liked being treated at the age of 16 as, as an adult. And so having left school with no qualifications, a year later I had 10 O-levels and two years later I had four A's. Um, and then I took off and then I got lucky, Steve. Uh, I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I was there 19 years old, 1985. Before 1985, in order to work in the city of London, had to, you had to be invited in. Right. Okay. I didn't know that. It was, by, it was a closed shop. You, you, it was invitation only. Right. But the second Thatcher government uh, did what was called by the press at the time, Big Bang in the city of London liberalized financial services and all the foreign banks came in all the american canadians germans japanese 
you name it, they all came in. They all needed staff. Um, so I had decided that I wasn't going to be able to do what I really wanted to do with my life because that would take going to university for a seven-year course, which there was no way my parents could afford mm-hmm. um, because my lifelong passion is astronomy and cosmology, hence the name yes. of the company. Yes. Um, and uh, But there was no way I could go to university to study astrophysics or astrobiology or what have you. So I thought, well, you know, finance, it's, I'm good with maths, I like maths, and all of a sudden I've got these job opportunities all around me. So I joined Barclays Bank in 1985. And wow. all went from there. All went from there. So how long were you there for then, Tony? Um, I was Barclays for three years. Then I left for a small trust company, which specialised in property finance. Okay. Uh, which was um, as volatile then as it is now. <laughs> Um, But the company got bought out twice. I then ended up at uh, the biggest independent merchant bank in the city of London, and they still are. Um, And uh, in total, I was in the city of London for 17 years. Wow. Okay. Right. Enjoyed enjoyed that time? Loved it. Okay. Absolutely loved it. I was young, um, you know, all of a sudden... With my background, at the age of 23, I was middle management with a company credit card running around London and provided I bought the business in, which I did. Then, you know, the restaurant scene was just opening up in London, you know, the stadium concerts, you know, obviously 1985 was the year of Live Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, the con- you know, I remember going to see Queen at the Milton Keynes Bowl in 82. Uh, which to this day is still the best live concert I've ever seen in my life. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, sports internationals, football internationals, cricket matches at Lords, rugby at Twickenham, you name it. I took guests there and had a whale of a time um, oh. and really enjoyed myself. Got married, had two kids, worked very long hours. Um, marriage didn't work out. And so in 2000, 2001, I took a sabbatical and two weeks after 9-11, left London on a 10-month round-the-world trip. Wow. Where did you go? We went to Thailand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did Bangkok, Phuket and Chiang Mai. Then we did, love Chiang Mai up in the north. Um, then we did Hong Kong, which is an amazing place. Mm-hmm. 20, I mean, absolutely 24-7. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. incredible place. Um, Singapore, uh, which was really interesting as well. And then we did uh, Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne, and Sydney in Australia. Uh, went across to the North Island of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And then, then had a really quite surreal uh, airplane journey in that we left Auckland Airport in New Zealand, flew for 16 hours, um and landed at buenos aires in argentina right five hours before we left auckland <laughs> i know i know it's straight <laughs> yes yeah i've done one of those journeys myself it is a bit odd isn't it it is a bit it was, odd. A, it was a long old day yeah yeah but, but then you, you you know after that you settled back in portugal then yeah so we then did south america uh went back to portugal and then 
I did two things in Portugal. Um, I helped out with a family catering business, uh, one of my aunts has. But during, just going back a bit, one of the things that I started to dabble in uh, in my last few years in, in London was foreign exchange because I was dealing property finance, but as my clients got wealthier and they bought a nice house and they put the kids in private school and they got a nice car and the Rolex and all the other trappings, the next one on the list was inevitably a holiday home abroad. Okay. And uh, Portugal was very popular with the British. Obviously, it's the oldest political alliance in the world between the two countries. Uh, and I'm bilingual, so uh, I helped unofficially out and client-side asking me to keep an eye on the exchange rates for them. And I knew foreign exchange from a theoretical point of view from my banking studies, mm-hmm. but never actually uh, done it in practice uh, other than guide my property developer clients as to, you know, the rate's good at the moment, the rate isn't good at the moment. Nothing more techy than that. But uh, then I got to London, and at that time the internet was, uh, sorry, I got to Lisbon in 2002. And the internet was really beginning to take off then. Mm -hmm. So alongside helping my family out in the catering business, I became what is now called a day trader, where I traded on my own account, buying and selling stocks and shares and commodities and foreign exchanges and all all contracts for difference and EFTs and everything else that I could think of to to make a turn. So I did that for four years. And life was good. We lived in the Algarve. You know, I worked largely for myself and uh, it was good. And uh, the young lady that I'd uh, met in London um, just before we uh, left, um, all of a sudden we started talking about starting a family. Mm-hmm. And um, Portuguese is pretty good after four years. You know, she could easily go to the shops by herself and the post office by herself and what have you. But uh, she didn't feel comfortable uh, going to see a gynecologist or a midwife by herself and <laughs> right. knew my work schedule meant I might not always be available. So uh, we decided to come back to the UK. Um, but both of us had been brought up in the East End of London. Both of us had really enjoyed our youth in London, but didn't really fancy going back and starting a family there. Mm-hmm. And my wife's school, or all her school holidays, um, childhood holidays were in Cornwall. Nice part of the world. So a uh, lovely part of the world. So uh, 16 years ago, we arrived and uh, we took one look around and I thought, yeah, I see what you mean. I like this place. <laughs> so, so, so there you go. So what a journey. So what are you doing now then? You know, your, your company is called Cosmos Currency Exchange. And I guess it's linked to all those, that wonderful story that you shared so far has got you to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um I, when I got to Cornwall, I, because of the, my CV uh, and experience, uh, I found work in the industry, uh, working for other brokers, but I always had an idea in the back of my mind to set up on my own. Um, one of the fundamental things that's changed in the, certainly in most financial services, but certainly in foreign exchange, Steve, is that in 1985, when I started, there was only one business model. Okay. And that was relationship-based business models. You know, you're still going back to the 400 years to when the coffee houses first started and people would talk to each other uh, and write bits of paper out, which became checks, uh, <laughs> promissory notes and, and all that stuff. And that was the only game in town. You know, you went to visit your clients at their premises. They came into the bank for an interview uh, to discuss 
an overdraft or a loan or whatever it is that's needed. Um, and in the 34 years that elapsed, um, the whole industry, certainly foreign exchange, has gone from 100% relationship-based business models to 99% transaction-based business models. It's all about the technology now. Mm, it's all about all an about, algorithm. Yeah, it's all about the algorithm. Yeah, It's all about the iBot. It's all about the press one for this and press two for that. Mm. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not a Philistine. You know, technology can play a part. It can speed things up. It can save time and money. The problem is most brokers have gone down the route of 100% technology only, which is why when you see their um, customer reviews, you see loads and loads of excellent reviews because when it works, it works. Mm-hmm. But you also see quite a lot of one-star reviews where for whatever reason, it hasn't worked. And you wanted to send a 1000 Australian dollars down to your cousin in Australia who's just graduated. You've gone online, you've bought the Australian dollars, you've paid for it, the money's gone out of your UK account, but nothing's arrived in Australia. Right. And you can't okay. work out what's gone wrong. And you think, okay, so you then go back to the app or, or, or what have you, try get hold of a human being to explain, to guide you and help you. You know, largely, mm-hmm. there isn't one. Um, so the not so revolutionary idea I came up with is to try uh, to create Cosmos Currency Exchange, a simple marriage of the old with the new. So we use the latest technology because that can save time and money. We use local collection accounts because with my banking background, I know the banking of a foreign exchange transaction can be as problematical as getting the right exchange rate. Okay. Because not every banking system around the world is as advanced as it is in the UK. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, the biggest economy in the world, the United States, try getting an online banking transfer out of the United States from a US-based account. Not a chance. Not a ch- Wow, staggering. <laughs> Absolutely staggering. And that is if you're dealing with one of the top five banks who have online banking, the majority still don't. Right. I mean, the biggest economy in the world has a system that still the, the, the number one way of settlement is by checks. Really? Wow. What was the last time you wrote out a check? What was the last time any of us wrote out a check? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, ages ago, you know. They still barely have chip and pin. Normally, when you go with a credit card to pay at a till in an American shop, they put it into the old card machine, if you remember, and put an impression <laughs> on a docket, and you yeah. sign for it. Right. They still have that system, largely. Um, so it was quite interesting that when we first started Cosmos, and I was daft enough to start the bank, uh, <laughs> I start the Cosmos Currency Exchange just before the first lockdown, with the benefit of hindsight, and <laughs> great timing on my part, but there you go. Um, but we've got local collection accounts. So we've got a New York US dollar account based in New York that clients can use to pay into to make life easier for American clients. We can do the same for Canadian-based clients. We can do the same post-Brexit with European clients because uh, we've got a Euro account in Amsterdam and Holland. Right. Um, but the idea behind Cosmos is very simple, Steve. It's to marry the convenience of local accounts with the speed and the cost savings that come from using the latest technology, but with a relationship-based proactive business model where everybody gets spoken to and treated as an individual 
and everybody has access to a human being. How wonderful. Every step of the way. How wonderful. So what kind of things are you helping clients with then, Tony, you know? It's really broad ranging, Steve. It's really is a lot more broad broad ranging than most people think. So, you know, on the business end of things, the traditional market has always been importers and exporters. But uh, the biggest growth area in the last two years has been either uh, businesses with offices abroad. Okay. Or businesses using overseas remote workers. All right. Okay. They're having to do the salary runs to all four corners of the world. Interesting. Um, and as one gentleman said to me, who runs a virtual PA business out of London and has a workforce, workforce spread all over the place from the Philippines to Ghana to Brazil to Mexico. He thought he was being pretty clever with his business model. Where he didn't ever factor in is the cost of using the banks with the, sending them the salaries out to those countries. Wow. Yes. Taking the majority of his profit just transferring the money, just the transfer fees. Uh, so we came up with a solution for that, and uh, now the business is uh, going from strength to strength. Um, personal clients, it can, be, it's, it can be anything from big-ticket items like property purchases and property sales. And that's not only people buying holiday homes and second homes. Because the tax laws in the UK mean that it's not so advantageous as it used to be to buy to let. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people, certainly pre-COVID, were buying properties abroad to rent out on Airbnb. Okay, yeah. Uh, forgive me if I'm not allowed to mention certain names. No, but you're all right, go. That's all right. Everybody knows it. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> uh, Airbnb and uh, and then bring the rental income. Two, we, do, we pay a lot of study fees. So foreign students coming to the UK to study. Uh, one, you know, need to pay the study fees directly to the university, open up a local account to uh, put the money into to cover their living expenses, or British students going to work uh, to go to study abroad. And it doesn't even have to involve Britain. Um, uh, my first trade this week was for a client based in Israel whose daughter is studying art at Florence University in Italy. Wow. They needed to move Israeli shekels to Europe. That's fine. No problem. It doesn't have to involve the pounds. We have access to over 35 currencies to and from over 50 countries around the world. So it doesn't have to involve the pound. Obviously, the majority of, of bills that we do does. Mm. Um, mm. We pay medical bills abroad. We've seen a big increase in, in people going abroad, either for elective surgery uh, because of the NHS waiting lists and the cost of private medical insurance in the UK to cosmetic surgery. Uh, for sort of younger people who are going for hair transplants and all the rest in, in yeah. countries like Poland, Albania, Turkey, where the cost of these procedures are, are a fraction of the UK cost, all the way down to collectibles. You know, I've got quite a lot of people who um, are into buying American cars. Right, okay. You know, yeah. Or Harley-Davidson yeah. motorbikes or watches or stamps or a fine wine collection from... California or, or the France or what have you, and all the way trickling down to salary, pension payments, to sending money. December, most of my trading is sending money out to family and friends for Christmas presents, where you got family abroad in Australia or Canada or South Africa or wherever they happen to be. Rather than using the bank, you use a service like Cosmos 
and the same amount of currency will cost you a lot less pounds. Wow, uh, absolutely amazing. So, so yeah, Tony, so broad ranging. yeah, really broad ranging. So it, not bad for that eight-year-old that arrived with <laughs> no jacket, no coat, freezing weather, bronchitis and German measles, is it? and not speaking a word of English. What what a what a really inspirational story, you know. I'm sure, you know, for people out there listening, they'll be thinking, you know, you know, if if you're feeling stuck or anything like that, just relate to this story and what can be uh, what can be achieved. So, Tony, where how can people find out more about you then and get in touch with you? Yeah, through our website, Steve, uh, www.cosmoscurrencyexchange.com. Or give us a, uh, a call on 0300 124 6409 uh we're also on social media um so you can get hold of us that way and uh, we will always make uh contact uh at maximum within 24 hours of the uh, initial inquiry good tony it has been a pleasure speaking to you today sir and uh i'm going to say wish you well and i'm going to say keep warm <laughs> <laughs> thank you so thank much you. Thank you very much, Steve. Well, thank you for joining me on this week's Glass Half Full podcast. If you'd like to join me as a guest, then why not get in touch? You can email me at steve at stevetwynham.com. And also, if you're looking for a radio station that is that little bit different, that brings you all about well-being and happiness and personal development and great music too, uh, then check out Yawa Radio. That's Yawa spelt Y-O-W-A-H dot co dot UK. Check out Yawa Radio, bringing that feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. So once again, thank you for joining me on today's Glass Half Full podcast. It is produced and presented by myself, Steve Twynham, and copyright applies. And whatever you're doing for the rest of your day, have the best day you possibly can. Yawa Radio, bringing the feel-good feeling to every day.